because these are not people who like a lot of, uh, of attention. So, um, but that's a big deal for us to have so many people. It allows us to come just an hour early each morning, which saves us a lot of money in the long run. And so it's a really cool deal for them. Uh, the other thing that I was going to announce, because um, I didn't uh, remember that I was supposed to announce this on the proper announcement forum, is remember this weekend we're going to start our donations for our auto ministry. Our auto ministry is one of our kind of core ministries here at the church, and it's basically where we provide microfinance loans for people who don't have... I'm getting an echo. Are you working on that? Maybe? Okay. Um, thank you guys so much. Uh, I, it's where we provide microfinance loans for people who can't afford cars or afford repairs or things like that, and we have done a lot of work for a lot of people in the last year and a half. And so if you'd like to support that, we've got a matching funds. Someone's decided to donate $6,000 of matching funds, and so our goal is 6000 You can do that through the Metro Auto Ministry Facebook page. Uh, we're going to have some testimonies kind of rolled out here uh, soon as well through that page, and uh, there's just a button that you can go to, or you can go straight to our Denton North website and, uh, and donate there. Um, but this is just an opportunity. We're going to kind of sneak it in, you know, during the tax season, so maybe we can steal some of your tax money and uh, put it to a good, good use. Uh, so there we go. That's my announcement about that. We'll announce that for a couple more weeks, and then starting uh, in a few weeks, we'll do uh, Spring Hita as well, so which is awesome. Great. Yes. Teens. Go teens. Uh, teens. Oh, where are they? Where do they go? Um, so, we are going to continue on in a series that, uh, that we just really started a few weeks ago. We're going to be in John 5. Uh, hopefully, you guys uh, have taken opportunity to read ahead in our sermon series, which is always posted on our Facebook page, to figure out what it is we're doing next uh, so that you can read. And um, some of the suggestions I'm going to make today, which is a little bit more of a teachy sermon than it is preachy, um, and uh, you'll, you'll be able to start implementing those. Every week we've tried to both give you things that are core beliefs. The whole reason we're doing this series is because we believe that our generation doesn't really read the scripture, and as a result doesn't have core beliefs about God. We're just sort of in the wasteland or desert land of the, our belief system, and so we almost question everything without having anything that brings us together. While I believe that non-denominationalism and those trends have been positive and have brought a lot of people together that otherwise wouldn't be together, the downside of that is we seem to have no backbone, no core anymore. And so it's really important that our generation rediscovers, like Josiah did the law, the scripture and lives in it and understands how to read it and really makes it a pivotal part of understanding who God is and growing in our faith. And so that series is Building Belief and the Right Reading of Scripture, uh, certainly after 500 years uh, since the Reformation, we have learned a lot about what to do, what not to do, and that's the real goal of uh, this series. So please be following along and using the tools that we're giving you uh, to actually do this, because if you don't, you're not going to learn anything from these sermons. Well, you will learn some things, but you'll be that, that person that we talked about in the first uh, sermon series that knows how to talk about things, but doesn't really know how to do anything. Um, don't be that person. As we're going to talk about today, that doesn't really bode well for you and your faith. So please, uh, engage in these scriptures. Larry, you had a question? Oh, good question. I don't know. Um, <laughs> a couple weeks, you know, once I get my team uh, together, because, you know, this, this, so we're going to do a, a, a class on uh, studying the scripture and the five kind of major time periods of interpretation, ancient Near East and Hebrew, uh, Greek, the medieval time, Renaissance, and then modern methods. And so I'm going to pull in one of our English majors in each of those classes to help teach you the kind of ins and outs of that time period and how that could be really helpful for you in your study of Scripture. Obviously, we only have an hour, so we're not going to bore you to death. We're going to really try to make it practical. Maybe a week, maybe two weeks, you know, sometime. And then at the end of the semester, we'll do something on devotional reading, uh, which uh, maybe make, will make more sense as, as I talk today about the sermon that we're going to do. Uh, so, great. How many of you are reading through those scripture passages each week? Okay, all right, all right. All the Bible warriors, all the people who are like, I got the quiz question right, you know, I did it, I'm doing it, yeah, all right. So, we're going to be in John 5 today. Uh, the title of the sermon, for those of you who love titles, Devotion and Study, A Double-Edged Sword, right? Pretty cutting-edge stuff, right? Uh, 
like most of my titles that should probably be, you know, book titles because they're so good. Um, no, titles are awful and usually don't have anything to do with my sermon, but surprise, surprise, today it actually does, so that's good. Um, the reference, obviously, is coming from Hebrews 4.12, which talks about the scripture cutting to the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. It's, it's alive, it's active, and the entire series is really about that. But today, I want to try to differentiate two sort of approaches to scripture that many of us, uh, uh, I think, practice, uh, and that is both studying the scripture and devotional reading. And some of us have maybe more of a propensity for one or the other, and I'm going to try to make the case that you really can't do one without the other effectively and, uh, and give you some tips on that. But then the next two weeks, we're going to break those two down, okay? And one week, just focus on the studying kind of side of things, and then the next week after that, just focus on the devotional reading. And then, of course, the classes will even go further into some of the things that we're talking about uh, today, okay? So John 5, 31 through 47. Now, I'm going to read these texts, but also I want to kind of show you a little bit of what I mean by devotion and study as I'm reading them. Now, I've tried to get you guys to ask questions as we've gone along, and nobody asks any questions, which I know is so strange for us to be like reading the scripture and people to ask questions. Maybe you will today in the method that I use. Maybe you won't. I don't know. But it's kind of cool, I think, to, uh, to learn that. So I'm going to go slowly through this, give you a little background of kind of what I'm thinking as I read through scripture and how both studying and devotion can kind of take place at the same time, but then also, you know, further we can separate those uh, so that they sort of pinpoint uh, particular approaches to Scripture that really help us. So here we are in John. John writes his gospel, his non-synoptic gospel, meaning that his gospel doesn't sort of follow a chronology. It doesn't follow beginning of Jesus' ministry to the end. Writes it way later. We're talking 60 years after Jesus is gone. And uh, it's really primarily written to an increasingly persecuted church, like so many of our documents in the New Testament are. And this persecution has gotten bad, not only on the, the Jewish side of things, because the temple is gone, and so the Jewish people are now more forced into being around other Christians than ever before, now that they don't have their sort of home place. But also Rome has increasingly persecuted Christians at this point. And so Christians are persecuted on really both sides. And so John writes this as uh, kind of partly a, hey, you're being persecuted, you're undergoing trials and temptations and, and, and struggles. Yep, Jesus kind of prepared you for all of that. So that's okay, make sense of it. Uh, glory in the gospel in the midst of these things. And so what John does that's really cool, and so far one of the reasons we've, we've talked a lot from John is because John kind of organizes his gospel thematically, which means he takes really specific themes and then kind of approaches scripture from that way. And he ties in a lot of what Jesus says to these incredibly specific themes. Now, he follows the festivals that were common for Jewish people at that time. Uh, three of the major ones were Pentecost, which was seven, days after, or seven weeks after Passover, which was in the spring. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, which was in the uh, 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 fall months. Those have for themselves a lot of really interesting background, which we'll talk about later today. And so John picks up on all these events in the life of these Jews and sort of ties in Jesus' statements and timeline to uh, how he was doing these things. Plus, John uses a lot of Jesus' dialogue. So more so than in Matthew, Mark, uh, or Luke, you're going to find a lot of Jesus talking, way more than in any of the others. And in fact, John has a lot of what Jesus said that's nowhere in the other three Gospels. And so it really is an interesting book to kind of start off with, especially if you've never studied or never done devotional reading, I would absolutely recommend you start with John, all right? And the same thing is if you were ever going to get to the place where you were going to study the Bible with someone, uh, John is just a great place to start because it really presents things in a really uh, beautiful, symbolic, uh, and, uh, and thematic way. And so John's just a great place to, uh, to kind of start practicing some of these things. So John 5 and verse 31, here we go, you ready? If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There's another one who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony is valid. He's talking about God here, right? You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it so that you may be saved. A strange statement here, because he's going to ultimately appeal to five different authorities, okay? And John is the only really human authority of them, 
And he says, not that I exactly accept that, but for some reason, this is going to be more palatable for you. You ever wondered why Jesus doesn't himself write a gospel? Why doesn't Jesus write any scripture? Muhammad wrote scripture, right? Uh, Hindu, various Hindu uh, uh, holy people wrote scripture. Buddha doesn't really write scripture, but, you know, that's kind of not really a religion as much as it is sort of a way of life, or at least originally was. Why doesn't Jesus write scripture? Would it all be just easier if we didn't have to listen to the apostles, you know, go on about this or that, or have different perspectives or different ways of thinking? I really, have you ever just wondered, why doesn't Jesus go ahead and just write scripture? He's here. Seems like he could. I mean, and maybe there's some technical reasons, like that would take a long time, and he only had three years. He had more important things to do. But what's more important than pass down the information uh, that we're supposed to need in his word? I don't have great answers for this. I'm not going to lie to you. I have three answers. I'm not really for sure how great they are, okay? So let me give you them. Number one, what's really significant about Jesus not writing scripture is, so if you have God sort of speaking through the prophets in the Old Testament, and you have Jesus coming and speaking words to his people, well, where's the Spirit's role in all of that? Arguably, the Spirit's role is in inspiring the authors of the New Testament to make sense of all of these events that have happened. And so in one sense, it's to allow this third person of the Trinity, okay, that we like to ignore, to actually have a role in all of this. Jesus himself said, you're not going to remember any of this stuff. You're going to need the Spirit to even believe or make sense of all the stuff that you've seen. And if the Spirit speaks not only through these apostolic authors, but then speaks in us to make sense of these thoughts. And I think there's a role for the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying you have to accept it or like it or think it's a great idea, all right? I'm just telling you these are my reasons, all right? I don't have any proof of any of this. This is total conjecture. I think this is a really hard question. Number two is there is something radically different about God using ordinary men to write a profound, and really ordinary women as well, they didn't write but had incredible testimonies throughout the scripture, to present his message. Guys, ancient Near East uh, literature, Greek literature, even up into the Renaissance, it was mostly rich, educated people who wrote their perspective on things. So to have the biblical authors, many of which were not rich or even that educated, we might think Paul was pretty educated, but he was educated in Jewish law, which at the time was not very impressive And yeah, he was a part of the Sanhedrin most likely, but still, that was kind of a cool thing in his own world, okay? That's like being part of the lab band that nobody really knows about, except if you're, uh, you know, really pay attention to the Grammys or if you're in Denton, okay? Uh, It's incredibly cool and really impressive, but that was a bad example. Um, Sorry, I know nothing about music. I'm a hack. Okay, Um, so... Luke, who we see physician, that's great. Guys, Luke was a slave, Let's be really clear about this. Physicians in Jesus' day were almost always slaves. These were not highly educated people. We didn't actually know a whole lot about the human body even 150 years ago. We kind of had a skeleton, but can you imagine a doctor only knowing your skeleton and then trying to work on you? Not the best thing, perhaps, unless you have a broken bone. Uh, But, you know, yeah, he was decently educated. But my point here is that God throughout the Scripture uses insignificant people to do absolutely significant things so as to bring glory to his name. So as to show that the weakest among you is wise in God, much wiser than the strongest, most wise among you. And this is really important. There's an aspect of here where, which we're going to get into in just a moment, where this idea of human testimony versus the testimony of God is kind of playing off of itself. The third thing I would say, ooh, the third thing I would say is this idea of accommodation, which is kind of a theological term. You don't have to go too much into it, but um, the, the whole idea is that God uses our language to communicate to us. He accommodates to us, because whenever we hear words directly from God, we tend to get a little afraid, and we don't quite understand what's happening. You know, think back to the Ten Commandments, you know, Mount Sinai. Think back to all the different examples where people, would, you know, had angels approach them. And so, in, 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 uh, in essence, God is accommodating to us to understand 
uh, help us understand exactly what he's saying through other people writing it. In fact, that seems like what Jesus is saying here, to me, with the idea of John's testimony. That I don't accept John as testifying to me uh, as being the son of God, but if you do, you, that might at least help you walk along the path of understanding who I am. And I think that's important. There's something about that human-to-human kind of connection uh, that starts us on the path to understanding things much more difficult and divine. So that's just what I'm going to say about it, all right? Let me make one more comment, and then I'll move on, and this is really important. Throughout the last 300 years, what's called historical critical uh, analysis of the Scripture has questioned whether any of these biblical writers really knew what they were doing, Okay? This is a, what's called redaction criticism, and it's the idea that all these people were just sort of putting together stuff that they had already knew orally or had documents of, and they really weren't putting things together thoughtfully or in, in, in any way inspired. They were just sort of throwing it together to produce a document that, that more or less could serve as sort of the authoritative document on the issue. And maybe you're aware of that, maybe you're not, maybe you have a little bit of that, uh, you know, that sort of extreme liberalism in terms of Scripture has really taken away the bite from Scripture. But one of the things that I want to communicate to you today and throughout this series is that I believe, and I believe it is the belief that we should all have, that these authors absolutely knew what they were doing, and in parts where they didn't know what they were doing, absolutely the Spirit was guiding them to write exactly what we needed to hear. Does that mean we have to believe everything they believed about the time and period they were in? No, we'll talk about that later. But that the authors are very wise in how they put these things together. There is no way to read John and not be blown away. Guys, John was a son of thunder. He was a rough, blue-collar, mean-spirited, ready to call down the vengeance of God on every city that turned their back on him. Just remember back through him, uh, his interaction with Jesus. And he writes this gospel where basically love is the central theme of it. How do you go from 30 years ago, 60 years ago, being this pretty mean, radical dude to being the one, as I mentioned last week, where Jesus is the apostle that Jesus loved, which doesn't mean that Jesus was playing favoritism. It means that John was understanding and knowing love and had this love relationship with them. That's radical stuff. It's very, very radical stuff. And so I think it's important that... uh, you know, that we, uh, we have some kind of sense of that. And John writes this brilliant gospel, and he doesn't seem incredibly educated, just one of the, I don't know, I can't remember if he was a fisherman or something else. You guys have to tell me that. I can't remember the background there. But he definitely wasn't some impressive, well-educated person, yet he writes this beautiful gospel to us and is very, very, very intentional about what he's doing. So that's enough prep. I'm sorry, I got a little too, too into it there. Uh, 531, we're still back there at the scripture. So there's another, uh, so I'm going to say, I'm actually pick up a 33. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention this, that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. Now remember, light and darkness are huge themes here. We talked about John 1, light, darkness, you know, love, hate, these sort of dualisms, these Greek dualisms are really kind of common in John. He uses a really, almost like a, Combination of like seven or eight words, very simple words, very simple themes, and then makes these really grand statements using them. So you enjoyed this light for a little while, great, but I have a testimony much weightier than that of John. Okay? For the very work that the Father has given me to finish, in which I am doing, testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form. Now I want to back up a little bit because what you have in four, five, six, and eight are John's attempts to reconcile what Jesus is saying with these four major festivals. The three that I mentioned, and then fourth being Sabbath, which was really the only weekly sort of festival that people uh, you know, abided by or paid attention to. But Sabbath really set the rules for everything else. It was the thing that you know, all the other festivals uh, kind of were supposed to mimic and uh, reiterate. Now, why did Jesus get in so much trouble for doing stuff on the Sabbath? Well, there's a couple, there's a couple of things uh, that we'll talk about in a moment that make sense of this. But this, this first chapter in chapter 5 is Jesus talking about God working. 
And if you missed the connection here, remember back when we did some of our life skills class about Sabbath, what the whole purpose of Sabbath was? Anyone remember? What's the whole purpose of Sabbath? I know, none of us keep it, right? That's, this is our problem. Uh, but it's not rest. It's right. It's, it's resting, knowing full well God is still at work, and look how everything is getting done without you. Not just rest for the sake of rest. Remember what Jesus says. You know, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. The whole purpose is for us to remember that God is consistently at work while we're at rest. Okay? Is there an alarm going off or what do we got? Oh, train. Okay, good. So many sounds. So many distractions for someone like me. Um, so, why is all of a sudden these people getting mad at at people working on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus is saying, listen, number one, I can work on the Sabbath. He's connecting himself with God, first of all. And by the way, in John, Jesus is just outright about his sonship, okay? Whereas in the synoptics, it's sort of like he kind of gradually uh, helps people understand this. But two, he said, you guys have missed the entire purpose of the Sabbath, which we'll talk about why that is in just a moment. So I want to go back to this because this is important. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. He is talking to a group of people who have based their entire culture, their entire lives, their entire identity around God's words. And Jesus says, you have never heard his voice. I mean, the... the, the this is really crazy stuff for him to be saying, okay? Really crazy. Nor does his word dwell in you. Why? Because you haven't studied enough. No. Because you haven't applied enough. No. Because you don't even believe in the one he sent. You so missed the key and the content of what you're reading that you don't even recognize when the very thing that you've been reading has come into life. We talked about that, the idea of the word becoming performative. You've read this description all these years, and then when the thing actually shows up at your doorstep, you don't even recognize it. What have you been reading? What have you been coming to understand? If the very thing you're reading, when it shows up, you can't even recognize it. This is a judgment on them. And one of the other kind of themes that you're going to see in John, and particularly through these uh, four passages, is it's, he's, you know, Jesus is on trial. From the very beginning, he's on trial. And in this trial, not only is he going to be accused of things, but in like any good Jewish trial where you possibly had a false witness, the witness themselves is subject, okay? And so he, uh, he may, has all these false witnesses coming up against him, but now he's going to go on the offensive to question these false witnesses around them. We don't really do that in our court of law. It sure would make court drama a lot more interesting. Uh, but we don't do that. Uh, but they certainly did. So you, you're seeing this in, in, uh, in kind of this law court play out is, is pretty important. In verse 39 here, you diligently study the scriptures. It's a positive thing. You're in these day in, day in, out. You can read them. You understand them. You've memorized them. You built your whole world around them. But these are the very scriptures that speak of me. You think you're going to get eternal life (laughs) from them, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. It's the same thing. You picture this thing that you're reading, and all of a sudden it comes into life, and you think, man, this is the greatest day, but instead you just don't recognize it at all. It's completely lost on you. I don't accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I've come in my Father's name, and you still don't accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept them. It goes back to that idea, I think, of accommodation. That accommodation too far, we go too far in it, then we just stop at human testimony, which is a huge theme here. 
Um, and uh, so it's okay for us to kind of take baby steps in that direction by looking at John first or one of the authors of Scripture. But if it doesn't ultimately lead us to Christ, at the end of the day, we're just stuck with somebody's opinion on something, whether it's ours or theirs, and there is no life in that. There is no description of Jesus in that. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But don't think I'll accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Now, one of the things that also is important to recognize here is Moses is constantly talked about as this authority in Scripture. You've got to remember, the, the uh, Mishnah, or what we call the Mishnah today, which is really the oral Torah, was this large uh, body of documents that were interpretations, commentaries, extra laws that helped the Jews interpret the actual Torah. This didn't get codified until about 200 A.D., all right? But this looks a lot like the Catholic dogmatic constitution or the apostolic rule of faith. Basically, these extra biblical documents that help us see the original documents. Now, this is tricky because Jesus is saying you've so bought into those that you've completely missed the original messages in the scripture themselves. And this is definitely, definitely an indictment uh, on our obsession with books about the Bible and commentaries about the Bible uh, or calendars about the Bible, or whatever else we have, but not just taking the Bible uh, by itself. There's a risk in that. So uh, John 7, I want to move over there real quick. John 7, 14 through 24. A lot of same uh, themes. I won't stop as much in this one, and then I'll kind of make my points, and we'll be good to go. John 7, 14 through 24. So now instead of the Sabbath, we're at the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is kind of a weird holiday, but it's basically an ancient Near East holiday that was a pagan holiday that the Jews just sort of spiritualized. Kind of sounds like some Christian holidays, I know. Um, And this holiday came at the end of the season. There was no rain. There was drought. They would create these cool little houses that they would live in. The whole idea was supposed to be living on the land, you know, uh, know, being sheltered from the heat. And then every day they would go to the city pool and then walk back as a sign of praying for the rains to come. In some ways, this is incredibly pagan, okay? In other ways, this is them saying God is the one that provides us water. By the way, this is where the scripture, anyone who comes to me thirsty, yeah, He does that on the seventh day. On the seventh day, you do it seven times. Then the priest gets up and does the, uh, you know, sort of ceremonial, God's going to provide us rain for the next year. And in the midst of all that, here's Jesus off in the distance doing anyone comes to me even thirsty. That's why John's gospel is so amazing. Because you can read that scripture and think, okay, cool, yeah, I mean, thirsty, I'm thirsty, and I want some life, rivers are flowing. But... The significance of it, right, is completely lost on you unless you at least know a little bit about what John is trying to accomplish here. Yeah. Tabernacles. It literally means these little shelters that you lived in. Remember when we did box houses at Colin? Yeah, that was sweet. That was not celebrating Feast of Tabernacles. (laughs) But who knows? We could do that. We could bring it back. We created, for those of you who don't know, these, uh, we did this event for Help Us Help the Homeless where we which actually kind of seems really uh, patronizing now to think about it, but um, we created box houses that we lived in for an entire night, and we slept there in front of the Colin campus to raise money and awareness for people who are homeless, who, contrary to popular belief, don't mostly live in boxes, especially not the large boxes that our boxes became after a few years of doing this. We had, like, box cities. Um, okay, so... Uh, Feast of Tabernacles, 14 through 24. Jesus has this conversation with his brothers. They tell him, hey, they don't believe in this. They want you to go up there and prove your divinity, kind of as like an aside. Jesus says, you don't know my time. My time hasn't come yet. By the way, this is the last time that, that uh, Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem before he's uh, crucified. So he's never going to go back to Galilee. And so there's definitely some timing involved in this, as you see at the beginning of this chapter. But 714 is where we're going to pick up. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. 
The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? His answer, like the answer to the next two questions they have for him, is going to be heaven over and over again. But what's really significant about there is why were they so amazed at his teaching? Well, um, again, to use an analogy to the Catholic Church, one of the important things about Catholicism is it traces its roots back to apostolic tradition. And we want to trace this lineage and this sort of rule of faith, which has at times been helpful and at times not been so helpful, to the original apostles. That, hey, we're just communicating truth that the original apostles. Well, the rabbis did that exact same thing with the oral Torah. They had a lineage of rabbis that could trace themselves back to Moses. So the fact that Jesus came on the scene, had no rabbi over him, had nobody uh, who he could trace his authority lineage to, but somehow spoke with authority, was amazing to people. Where'd this guy go to school? Was their response. What rabbi did they study under? Uh, Did he study under? So this is just a a natural question uh, for them to ask. So... In 16, Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. This is sort of like a trial and error. Just throw it out there. He does not say if anyone learns, okay, about me. He says, if anyone chooses to do my father's will, he will know whether uh, I'm speaking on my own, human testimony, getting glory for myself, or truly getting glory uh, from Jesus himself. That's pretty important stuff. I mean, uh, he's basically just throwing it out there. You really want to know if uh, my testimony is right. Obey God and see what it gets you. See if you understand this stuff. Um, so there we go. Um, he who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Now remember this. Think, think through as you're reading this oral Torah, right? This this extra commentary that a lot of us still are pretty interested in. Think in terms of your own books that you read versus the, you know, uh, gospel itself. Uh, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered, which just means he's crazy. I don't think they're making a theological statement. Um, Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you're all astonished. This is the miracle of healing the man at the pool uh, who later gives... uh, Uh, testimony. Moses gave you circumcision, but actually didn't come from him. It came from the patriarchs, and yet you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now, if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Isn't that the purpose? Is God's healing us on the Sabbath? Okay? As always, God is at work. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. You got to memorize that verse. You got to write it down somewhere. But you got to contextualize it. Because what is he actually talking about when he says that? Because you can use that in way too many ways that aren't really true uh, to the passage he's talking about. Mere appearances, human testimony versus the testimony that comes from God. Let me give you just two quick points here, okay? And I know some of uh, you that was a little bit challenging and maybe a little tough because, um, you know, that kind of reading of scripture requires some knowledge, some background. But you develop that stuff as you go. And I think the scripture is always enough, You don't need any of this other stuff to be able to do. uh, Now, will it help you in some way? Sure. But probably it will harm you in more ways, and so you have to be very, very careful, and I want to talk about that now through these these two quick points. Number one, okay, is you can't start with asking, how does this apply to me? Because it doesn't. (laughs) Not first. You can't start with asking the question, how does this apply to me? Number one, this isn't about you. It's about God. Number two, he didn't write this to you. He wrote it to a specific audience, and you're going to have to do a little bit of work to unpack that to get to the point where you can recognize what the author is saying to you, and eventually what the Spirit is obviously communicating to you. And a lot of us don't like that. Our postmodern mentality of being able to, you know, simply take our own interpretation and let's just roll with that because that's the most important, or this tendency we have to be really efficient and practical, well, if it doesn't speak to me in like one verse, I'm out of here. Um, and if it doesn't speak to this current situation I'm in right now, I'm out of here. And all the other things that we uh, impose upon Scripture won't work. You can't start with asking, how does this apply to me? So there are two really stupid and complicated words called exegesis and hermeneutics. I know you've heard these. They're terrible words. They're kind of like the whole literalism versus literal. Um, It's arbitrary, the difference between the two in terms of their etymology, their background. 
But in terms of knowing what they mean, that's kind of important because you don't want to read the scripture literalistically, but you absolutely, absolutely want to read it literally. Okay, and I gave a quick explanation of that last time. So if you want to go back to that, great. But these two words, exegesis and hermeneutics, have long stumped us Christians. What does this mean? This is about like bourgeoisie and proletariat. Sorry, I don't mean to allude to Marx here this morning. Um, But the ways my students pronounce these words are always incredibly funny for me. I'm just waiting for the moment. Boogersies, the boogersies and the proletariat. They just kind of roll off on that one. So whether you can pronounce exegesis or hermeneutics right doesn't really matter because in all honesty, these words didn't even come into use until about 400 years ago, and they mean the same thing. They both mean to interpret. So you're just going to have to kind of take this arbitrary understanding. And if you want to use your own words, be my guest. Because I'd love to use better words than these two. But exegesis just means you did in the background research. Hermeneutics just means the question, how does this apply to me? You can't figure out how it applies to you until you've done the background research. There's literally no way. Okay? So we got to do exegesis first, background, and then hermeneutics. I hate both those words. I feel like such a silly person even saying them. Um, there's one thing that I have learned about academics is they love just making up words and then having a technical definition that only they understand. Uh, It truly is the heart of an academic to pretend like everybody else around you is stupid and only you know cool stuff. Um, Oh, that's a light bulb. I'm going to need that. Adrian, that's for your car. So, yeah, hi. Shut up late. Otherwise, I would have done it. too harsh. That was too harsh. Sorry. I'll do it after. I'll do it after. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, So you can't start with asking, how does this apply to me? You've got to do the background research. One of my favorite classes, uh, sociology, is when we, we talk about culture, and we talk about language, we talk about all the nuances of language, blah, blah, blah. And I pull up for them probably a bunch of fake stories. I don't even know if they're real, but I pretend like they're real, of these businesses that have tried to do slogans overseas, and they just fail, I mean, supremely. My favorite example e- ever is in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where you put on the pictures of food what's actually inside the food, they put Gerber, decided to introduce baby food, and they were smart because they made sure to put black babies on it. And so you had a whole bunch of people thinking that, you know, black babies were being sold to other babies in Gerber food. Not a great idea, right? Don't do your background research, you're going to have some problems. Recently, my favorite drink came back into being Pepsi Blue. Uh, and because normally you can't get Pepsi Blue, but for like $500 a two liter on eBay, and I don't even know how old that is, but apparently my friend in China is going to bring me back one, so I'm super excited. But Pepsi has a really wonderful mess up too. In the 60s, uh, their translation was, come alive with Pepsi, which in, uh, you know, Mandarin Chinese basically translated, drink Pepsi and your ancestors will come back to life. (laughs) Now, that's a scary enough illustration here if you, Pepsi comes out and says, drink Pepsi, and your old grandpa, you know, that you've missed for five years is coming back to life. But for them, ancestor worship is still kind of a big thing, even in the 60s, and that's even kind of even a bigger deal. Okay, so the point is made. When you don't do exegesis, you read scripture like a total hack, okay? Uh, and I'm not meaning here that you plumb the vast depths of all there is to know about this time period and these words, and you learn Greek and Hebrew, that's the extreme, okay, of this. Just, you got to do a little bit of background research. And it's pretty easy today. I mentioned how to read the Bible book for book, which gives you all the information, uh, whatever. I don't care that I keep saying that wrong. Um, book by book, all its words, whatever. And you read that, that's helpful. It gives you a lot of the background that I already shared with you this morning. And it helps you kind of present uh, or read scripture in a way that's uh, not like uh, your ancestors will be brought back from the dead. Yes. How can we know what reliable sources are? Um, well, yeah, that's a good question. And I think probably um, how to read the Bible for all it's worth is the only reliable thing. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I mean, you know, knowing about the schools for which these professors are coming from is pretty important. You know, we've aligned ourselves with Regent somewhat just because they have such a wide diversity of faith backgrounds, sort of like our church. They've got Anglican and Catholic, and they've got non-dimensional, and they've got Pentecostal. And and so the authors of How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth come from Regent. 
And uh, that's part of the reason we like it, is because we know them, we've had classes with them, we've met with them, uh, and that can be really helpful. Um, but I don't know, this is a tough one. How do you know anything's really credible? Uh, I would say there's two things that lend credibility to any document. The first one is that it references other documents. Okay, that's the whole idea of literature review. And this is why pop books aren't good books for facts because they just cite themselves or their own head. That's why books that you know, are pretty good uh, for getting facts have like half the page is just footnotes and the top half is information. Because it gives you the power to go back and research these things on your own. That's, that's you know, how I feel about that. Um, I think the second thing is that it places their own opinion in comparison to those other people's ideas. That it's just as comfortable uh, communicating with you those other people's ideas than it is its own. Most pop books today are persuasive. They're trying to persuade you on a point. And really, they did it in like the first chapter. They don't even need the rest of the book. Just keep repeating the same stupid stuff over and over again. Um, but I would say that credible resources will tell you, hey, here are five ways of looking at this. And here's why I look at it this way. But hey, I've given you enough information on this for you to decide whether you actually think this perspective works better than my perspective. Not that they're not trying to persuade you, but they've given you the ability to make these decisions for yourself. Uh, and uh, I think that's important. So I'll just give you those two. Okay, so let me just say real quick, uh, how do we study the scripture? Well, let me tell you how we don't study the scripture, okay? Because studying the scripture is not complicated as, it, as we make it out to be. It's literally, in my mind, and I'll give you some advice, I think, at the end of this, and I want to talk way more about this in, t- uh, in two weeks, or next week, than I, than I will today. Uh, really, at the end of the day, it's just reading it a lot, and, and study isn't going out and reading 500 commentaries or a million people's opinions about it. It's just reading it a lot. Because if we believe that the authors wrote in a way that's smart, that's meant to connect with us, that the Spirit is going to be working in us, then what we need at the beginning is a lot of biblical text in our brain. What we don't need is a little bit in our brain, and a lot of other people's words mixing in. But that's what, what we mostly have, if not our own words. And so I think the biggest, biggest way we study Scripture is just by reading it a lot. And some of us have become convinced that somehow we know what's being said in that passage. But oftentimes when I study through the Scripture with people or when I'm reading it myself, often what I notice is I'll remember one verse, like don't judge by mere appearances, but I'll have no knowledge of what context that came from. So we may memorize verses, but have no real understanding or knowledge, and the uh, context, when it's lost, we lose the way to really think through these in much more deep uh, ways, because we have some general principle in our brain, but no real uh, biblical reason for backing it up. So let me give you a few things. Number one, Bible books, books about the Bible, are of limited help, okay? Why are you reading a book about the Bible when you have the Bible? I mean, yeah, okay, is it helpful to read Yancey's The Jesus I Never Knew, and you can understand some things in that? Yeah, great, sure. But if you read more Christian books than you read the Bible itself, what do you expect your authority where it's going to be? But a lot of us find it just easier to read someone's opinion on something. It's just easier. And, and, but unfortunately, a lot of our understanding of Scripture is faddish. It's faddish. It, 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 we, one year we believe this about it, one year we believe the next thing about it, and we're just following the testimony of the times, people writing things. It's no different than the Jews paying attention to their oral tradition, but ignoring the original text in the first place. And, and so Bible books are of limited help, um, in my opinion. Scientific commentaries, again, of little help. Uh, in exegesis, if you haven't lived in the text for a while, because your tendency and you read a scientific commentary is like, oh, this person's so smart. I think I'm going to go with what they say. No, you have the ability to figure this out yourself. The scripture is not writ- written to smart people. You don't have to be smart or spiritual to unlock the scripture. And so uh, commentaries can be helpful for getting a, a general uh, picture. I think commentaries are really only helpful for answering specific questions. But you will only have specific questions if you've lived in the text for a while. Uh, because it's like my students who come to class, I give them a study guide, but when they have no good questions, where do I even start? I can lecture, but they're not going to really get it until they study it. It's when they come with questions that they become pretty good learners because they've targeted uh, problems in their own learning. 
and, and issues. So I think scientific commentaries can be helpful, uh, but we ought not go too far in that. Uh, word obsession, I don't think this applies to many of you, but certainly seminary students who get so caught up in learning the Greek and Hebrew of things and then want to tell you. I, I can't tell you how many times in my own head I've read books or thought things or talked to people who change the entire meaning of a text because they've discovered what the Hebrew and Greek word really means there and then have just completely changed the meaning. Uh, I don't think you need to get too uh, caught up in that considering we have some really, really great translations today that go directly from the original uh, to our language in English. So that, that's good. Uh, doctrinal readings, uh, this is the kind of stuff where if you were to go to a church and they're going to kind of read you th- or send you through some specific texts that prove more or less their doctrinal uh, reading of the world, whether you go and do that through a church or not, some of us already read the scripture like that. We read a word like grace if we're Baptists and we've got all this theology behind the word grace and we're not reading the passage for what grace actually says. Or if we're Church of Christ, we're reading obedience or baptism, and we've got all these ideas about what baptism is. Or if we're Pentecostal, we're reading spirit, and we've got all these ideas about what spirit are. But we're not actually open enough to be able to read what the text is saying. The text is not always so systematic in its theology. In fact, I would say it's rarely systematic until you get to Paul. And even Paul's dealing with a lot of really specific church concerns, not writing systematic theology. But most of us, we've been birthed on systematic theology. Here is what you should believe about the Spirit. Here is what you should believe about baptism. Well, that is not how the original hearers would have read these texts. Now, did they have their own issues? Yes, of course. Particularly in this shift from Judaism to Christianity. But we've got to get past those doctrinal readings. So, I would suggest to you that one of the most important things to do is is ask yourself, in these readings, what's the author's point? Okay? Okay? That, that is one of the problems that we have had with reading the scripture, and we need to redevelop a, a, a being okay with the inspiration of text. Too many of us, when we hear inspiration of text, what we think is the scripture itself is inspira- uh, inspired, not the person who's writing the scripture. So we just bypass the, bypass the author completely. That is not Okay. If it was, Jesus would have written his own text, but he didn't. So one of the things that can be really helpful for us in our study of Scripture is what is the author's point here, okay? What's he actually trying to say? Uh, So, you know, I think that's important. Because why talk about what you know uh, when you can actually know? And uh, so it's important for us to not talk about and read about what people think they know, but to actually go ahead and read what the author is saying. And let the author guide your reading. Guys, these guys have written these things in a way that makes sense, that's outlined, that's deeply meaningful. Let the authors, the apostles, mentor and mature you in your faith actively as you read their words. They're the apostles for a reason. And you're going to go and listen to me or a biblical scholar over them? No, that's not how it works. They're going to be your guide. And we ought to appreciate that. And we really, really don't do that. We just simply don't. That is not one of our uh, kind of common tools for when we read the scriptures, trying to read uh, the scripture from an apostle's perspective. Second point here, and I know I'm going long, and I'm sorry, and I probably should have been all real short so you guys go eat with your families, and I did, messed up, I messed up, I'm sorry. Uh, the second point here uh, is you can't end with asking what background do I need to know? So you can't start with asking, how does this apply to me? But you can't end with asking, what background do I need to know? Because if all you do is exegesis, you're just a puffed up, knowledgeable person about the scripture, and nobody wants to listen to people talk about what they know. They want to just see someone do it, who knows it. And so these folks who diligently search the scriptures, they could talk about it all day long to the most tiny detail about it. But they weren't doing any of it. They missed the whole point of it. So exegesis is not enough. If you're one of those people who really likes the study aspect of it, you need to grow up in your faith and mature and learn to do what it's actually saying. A little less study and a little bit more practice. Okay? But I would assume that more of you probably have this other problem, which is uh, the first one. And that is is you can't go directly to how does this apply to me. You need to be able to do some background research. So this hermeneutics thing. (laughs) I have a funny, funny example for this. So my wife has kind of been teaching me Spanish, kind of. And by that, I mean, she's good. I'm just not, I don't know how much I'm committed to it. Um, 
And so one of the main reasons is, because she was teaching me all these basic phrases, but I really want to know like machine parts and car parts, because I mean, that's, that's when I'm talking to most Spanish speakers, it's Craigslist deals and things like that. Well, the other day, this guy calls about a car, or no, texts about a car. And I do a pretty good job of asking her to translate for me, getting on Google Translate and hoping that that works, you know. We've had a pretty decent Spanish conversation, right? Liddy calls me, and I'm like, oh, no. So I hang up on him a couple of times just to see if he's really serious. Calls me again later in the day. I'm like, I got to talk to this guy, man. I just got to talk to him. Well, so I ended up talking to him real quick. We had seemed to communicate well, and I'm like, man, yeah, I'm doing good. Short phone call. Later on, I asked my wife, what exactly did I say? And apparently, I told him he doesn't speak Spanish very well. <laughs> rather than telling him I don't speak Spanish very well. So it's probably why that conversation ended somewhat quickly. Um, anyway, okay, turns out he actually bought the car for me later. So apparently, he just thought I was really stupid and not mean. So that's good. That's good. Good, good, good. But that's the problem with, with uh, a lot of hermeneutics. Is most hermeneutics... It's somebody translating the biblical message for you. And if they're as terrible a translator as I am, then you're not going to be really getting what the message is. This is the important piece of what is happening in John 5 and John 7, is they have gone and accepted human testimony about what these scriptures mean above and beyond what the authors have already pointed to in regard to their meaning. So they reject Moses and his obvious emphasis on where this ought to go, and instead favor the oral Torah. And this is, I think, one of our big problems when it comes to interpreting Scripture, is we don't allow the authors to determine what it is the point of Scripture is. We've gone and ran to everybody else, including ourselves, to try to figure out what this is saying, and made it in the process, by the way, more complex than it needs to be. Because a lot of times what Jesus was saying wasn't all that complex. What made it complex was people not wanting to do it. They heard a message to them saying, go do this. And they just said, I don't want to do that. Well, let's just talk about this for a little while first <laughs> so we can stall, you know? And, uh, and that's a lot of what the scripture does. It bites, remember we talked about, tells us to do things. So I'll tell you some, uh, this sort of de- uh, devotional reading or, uh, that I think, I, and I'm, I'm kind of overlapping devotional reading with hermeneutics or, or application here that I think is really unhelpful. Number one is that kind of calendar reading, you know, where we've got like one verse each day and we're just sort of like learning it. <laughs> it sounds super spiritual, uh, but it's, it's not. It's a really terrible way of applying anything to your life, okay? Because um, one of the recommendations I'm gonna make, make in a moment, hopefully if you haven't already heard it, is that kind of memorization doesn't contextualize things. Random scripture generator. Some of you guys are into that, right? It's that whole like, Ezra is God's word to me today. <laughs> the list of descendants of Parish and Shepatiah and Ariah. Man, this is good stuff. I, I'm telling you, that's where I was. I didn't. So, random scripture generator, also not at all an effective form of reading the scripture. Not in study, not in hermeneutics. No matter how much you try to justify it, not good. Okay? Uh, the spiritual commentary, yeah, I love that one. That's that daily devotional book that has like one text of scripture and has like an entire page of someone else talking about something that has nothing to do with that passage or is kind of loosely involved with the passage. We love those, okay? I've gotten plenty of gifts as a pastor of spiritual devotionals that I want to be like, oh my gosh, and like two of them are good. We actually had a speaker once from UNT that came a couple years back to MLK and she wrote one and that one actually is really good. I like that one a lot. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, I would say cathartic memorization too. You know, we have these sort of go-to verses in our minds that we've memorized. Two of my favorites are, I've learned the secret of being content. People talk about that all the time. Like it's still a secret. Like you've developed the secret. Oh, good for you. But actually Paul already says what the secret was. It's just trusting God and not having anxiety over things that you can't control. What, what is the secret of being, but the worst one is we become more than conquerors. Oh, Christians love, we become more than conquerors. I'm going to conquer anything and everything in my way. That is not contextualized. He's talking about overcoming specific sufferings. And that not even those most deep and uh, you know, worse afflictions will draw us away from God. But we have just made conquerors of everything, okay? And so that is incredibly unhelpful, in my opinion, in terms of really applying some of these things that have bite. 
They lose their bite when we can generalize them to a point where we forget what they're even talking about. I don't think so. I think you start start with the scripture. I think uh, all the other stuff. Now, let me back up a little bit because if you take what Jesus is saying here in John 5 about John's testimony being kind of an entry point. You enjoyed his light for a while, but his light was ultimately shining on me. Then I think, yes, you know, things like mere Christianity or kind of entry points that are scripturally backed but the whole content of it is still general ideas, can be helpful. So I, I see what you're saying there. I kind of misinterpreted it at first. But I always think that it's also incredibly important to get people reading Scripture pretty early on. Um, because again, you, you, guys, we can make an entire, and we have, culture around religion that has literally nothing to do with the words of Scripture. It's religion. We've got our own words, lots of testimony, lots of thoughts, lots of stuff added in. And this is really dangerous. Because if the word is the thing that performs in our hearts with the Holy Spirit to move us forward, and all we've got is a little word and a lot of our words, how do we ever expect to really experience God and to grow in our faith? We've got to get back to the word as an important source, the only source of our faith. And just like, and I'm going to keep using this example because I really do believe we're a generation like Josiah's generation. They rediscovered the law and everything just was like, wow, it changed everything. And I think that's really important for many of us and those of us who can kind of attest to that, the scripture having that impact uh, in our life. Um, does someone else have a question? I thought, thought I had another hand, no? So uh, the question that I always ask myself is, is in these readings, where does the authority lie? With you or someone else, the authority always is going to lie with the author. The author determines is the authority in this, this context. And that's why we talk so much about trying to understand what the author is saying. Because they've got the authority here, given to them by Jesus, to explain something really important. So a better question, and I think I've already communicated this, but I'm going to say it again. What is the author saying and how do I know that? If you can bring to the text that question, what is the author saying and how do I know that? That's going to help you get at the heart of what the message is. It's going to force you to do the background research. And it's also going to kind of limit what you can apply into your own life. Because sometimes the background research is going to tell you, hey, some of this is going to apply to me, some of it's not. Obviously, we don't have an oral Torah, so we're not, you know, worried about that. Moses isn't exactly who we're, you know, basing our faith on. But the reformers, sure, will do a whole lot of that. And so we've got to kind of bring that, bridge that into modern context. So a couple things that uh, I want to suggest just off the cuff before, I don't know, I've gone too long. I'm sorry. Well, I always plan on two-point sermons being like 20 minutes, and then they just go for like 40. Uh, I, I apologize. So the first thing, general advice, is don't read chapters. Chapters don't help. I, some of you like read a chapter a day. or they, Guys, the chapters are totally arbitrary. And most of the time, they're not helpful. They're like starting in places that ought not be started. Well, actually, the starting place is a little bit better than the ending place. A lot of times they end where they shouldn't end. That's why the book by book is much more helpful because you can read in chunks. You've got to read large chunks at a time. And large, I don't mean like five chapters. I mean just a middle of a chunk. Something that you can kind of chew on that makes sense of the context of what's happening. I think that's super important uh, is to read those large chunks. Reading a chapter a day or a chapter, that's why some of these read the whole Bible in a year stuff. Uh, to me, maybe that's good to do once or twice, but you know, I always go by the saying you can overestimate what you can do in one year and underestimate what you can do in five. I would say a true biblical reading either needs to be in like two weeks or like five years. <laughs> but one, one year is not ideal for reading through the scripture, in my opinion, and really getting anything from it. Uh, a couple weeks, sure, you're going to get a huge, the interns do that, right? They have to read the entire Bible book to book in two weeks, I think, or one week maybe. Uh, and that's helpful. Good luck with that. Uh, five years probably makes more sense for actually understanding it. And, uh, and the third point here is just stay stuck in a text, guys. One of, the, one of the greatest things about the Bible is getting stuck in a text. That's why I like uh, this, this preaching class I've been doing because I'm a terrible preacher sometimes. And it's been talking to me about staying in the text all week. So your entire week, you're just in this text 
listening to pieces of it, understanding it, and that's the best way to exposit scripture. And I really love that. It's kind of changed how I look at a lot of, of scripture. Because I'm, I'm pretty like, all right, next scripture, let's go to that one. Um, but just staying stuck for a week or so, and the same thing, rereading, 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 and then maybe at the tail end, a commentary or something, but coming up with your own questions and your own way of looking at it. Uh, if you memorize, memorize context. That, that's one of the things I told you about, uh, earlier, meaning that you just don't memorize one verse and think, man, that's a great verse. But try to memorize what the verse actually is applying to, because it has a, a lot more bite that way. Uh, mix it up. So that's a little bit weird, because it seems opposite of stay stuck in a text, right? But uh, one of my most fruitful time periods for devotional and study reading, I did it for about four years straight, and uh, I just loved it. But basically, I took the Lord's Prayer and prayed, kind of, a, I broke it up into four pieces and, and prayed that along with reading a scriptural genre that was kind of similar to that. So the first part, you know, hallowed be your name, I read a gospel, yeah. And, um, you know, the, uh, let's see, what's the... Uh, uh, your kingdom come, no, no, your kingdom come, I read a gospel. Hallowed be your name, I read a prophet. Uh, because, you know, the prophets talk a lot about God being great and full of glory and things like that. Give us our daily bread, I read an epistle just to try to kind of get an idea of what do I need today kind of thing. And then uh, avoid temptation, uh, deliver us uh, from the evil one, forgiveness, all of that. I usually read, um, actually I don't remember what I read for that one to be honest with you. Uh, I think it changed a lot. I think Old Testament narrative, I think I read a lot of different things. But that was just helpful. Every week I was reading some different chunk, or every day I was reading some different chunk. That might not be helpful for you at all. You might hate that. Good for you. Um, do something that works for you, okay? Another time when my devotional life was really enriched was when I had a really pretty neighborhood, and I could walk around the neighborhood kind of like reading as I walked, or sometimes, I'm not going to lie, I acted out a few scenes. I was by myself. I was trying to get into the characters. Not even going to lie to you about that, okay? Uh, but whatever works for you, okay? Sitting is hard, man. I sit down, I try to read scripture, I'm like, I'm ready to move, do something different. So, or maybe like when you're sleepy in the morning or sleepy at night, that can, helps me at least because I'm slowing down. Now, if you're falling asleep while you're reading and reading the same passage over and over, that is not a good way to memorize, okay? Because you're actually, that's not comprehension. You're just, it's, it's like a new thought every time. Okay, so sorry that I went very long today uh, with that, um, but I, I really hope that you'll use some of these tools to rediscover um, uh, just a better foundation of belief in the scripture. And in the coming weeks, we're also, Grant's going to lead a, uh, a kind of a, uh, really just a group in the mornings on how to incorporate what we're learning into our worship time to really encourage that participation. So for those of you who want to come to that, 10 o'clock in the morning, we'll let you know, and you'll be planning for the next week uh, for worship and things like that. So right now, uh, we're going to take a time of communion, and our communion is a little bit different. Uh, we're just kind of loud, and the loudness is not because we just like to be loud, although we do like to be loud, uh, but it's because we want to celebrate Jesus in ways that, uh, that are, um, you know, indicative of celebrating, which is being loud, I think. And so, uh, you know, I think in the past, people have come and probably not been like, what is your communion? You don't, you're not solemn, you don't think about your sin, you know, what are you doing? Um, well, certainly you're welcome to do that. Whatever you need to do to remember Jesus, that's the point of communion, is we're remembering him. And I would say as a result of this, this uh, sermon series is, you know, when you get to read through the words of Jesus in the Old Testament, what better treat do we have into the mind of God to get to just see how amazing our God really is? And so as you read through scripture, I think one of the really important um, daily communion things we're trying to get at is the spirit to take the text to remind you back about who Jesus is. If you've forgotten everything that we've said here, then still one of the most important things when you read scripture is asking the question, what does this teach me about God's heart? And you're never gonna learn more about God's heart than what you'll learn from looking at the life of Jesus. A man who, you know, I mean, even just thinking about, when we can get to talk about this, the miracle that he did right before this that caused all these problems, he took a man who was paraplegic, who crawled around the ground, who probably smelled bad because he didn't have control over his bowels, and that was the man in his last encounter with Jerusalem, he's going to go and target and ask if he wants to be healed. I mean, that's our, that's our God. That's just what he does. That's, that's indicative of his nature to be the kind of person who finds the least likely and to go and target them and to love them. 
Uh, and so we have a lot to celebrate in that. And so uh, our communion, there'll be some folks in the back, and uh, you'll just take the bread, dip into the juice, gathering around. Plus, we don't have any room today. Um, so try to kind of get yours. Lord God, thank you for uh, giving us this word. Uh, I can't even imagine how difficult it was before the scripture was canonized, before it was put together, how hard it would have been to have a full glimpse of all that was going on. And it's so ironic uh, that we have all of that, and, and me, myself included, just ignore it. We've got so many other voices around us that are interesting, more interesting, seem easier to understand. But God, give us the desire and, uh, and just the memory to know that, uh, that your word is the word that lasts forever, that it doesn't pass away, that there's no wasted time when we're reading your word. There's nothing more important that we can do in terms of figuring out life and understanding who we are than reading your word, Lord. Help us to overcome some of the appearances of difficulty uh, and make wise judgments. Um, let us be a church and a generation that uh, changes uh, our reputation for being ignorant of the scripture. Please, Lord. Amen. All right, guys, you can get up and there are three people in the back for uh, communion. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.